Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. Good morning. Well, the British people have made a possibly disastrous decision to leave the European Union. We still can't rule out America electing Donald Trump as president. And in Ireland, we've elected so many independent populists, the Constitution has been thrown out the window in order to keep in power a government that has yet to demonstrate it can function effectively. So between globalisation and supranational institutions overriding national governments, an electorate relying on the fact-free world of social media for information, a generation of politicians too cowardly to speak their minds, is it possible that our system of democracy is no longer fit for purpose? The death of democracy, that is our talking point this morning. And in studio, Breed Smith is the Anti-Austerity Alliance, People Before Profit TD for Dublin South Central. Ivana Batchik is a Labour Senator for Trinity College. Dan O'Brien is Chief Economist at the Institute of International and European Affairs and Economist with Independent Newspapers. And Graeme Finlay is a lecturer at UCD's School of Politics and International Relations. Um, Graeme Finlay, I've listed several factors there that damaged democracy but one I didn't was terrorism another dreadful attack taking place in Nice this week do you get nervous at times like this that the reaction to terrorism is just one more factor eroding democracy yes because fear is a tremendous motivator in politics and I think that the greatest threat to democracy from terrorist attacks is that people will majorities will concede human rights, basic human and civil rights, um, out of a sense that somehow by getting rid of those, like under state of emergency powers uh, in, in, in France, they can, they can stop future attacks. So there is a real worry that, that it's the majority's reaction to, to the terrorist attacks rather than the terrorist attacks themselves. And Dan O'Brien, you see, one of the reactions to this fear has been Brexit. And I think it is fair to say that a lot of people voted to leave the European Union out of a fear or disdain for immigration, refugees, foreigners in all their various guises. And yet that does seem to be a bad decision based on a bad premise. So do you trust the people to make important decisions? Well, let's just step back and and admit there's a huge amount of uncertainty. What has caused this uptick in suicidal Islamist terrorism? We don't know. There are many factors. What caused the change in collective consciousness in the 1960s that made us, most people in society in general in the West, more liberal-minded? Again, there's no easy answer to that. Many things were involved uh, and they fed into each other. Equally, what caused British people to vote out of the European Union? I think there's a huge number of factors. You know, it was almost 50-50. Huge number of factors, economic factors, political factors, media factors. So I, I think it's just when, when we talk about these big things, I think it's 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 a good thing to say we're uncertain. We have to be uncertain because you can never fully explain hugely complex social phenomena. And yet, would you be concerned about the quality of democracy today that you've got? I don't want to really call it from the right. I'm not sure in this conversation there really is a right and left, but you've got everything from, say, Goldman Sachs, bond markets, uh, supranational institutions like the ECB and the IMF overriding really national governments. So people might think there's no point voting in a government anymore because the things that are affecting them are outside their power. You know, that, that there is a genuine erosion well, there of the power of a person's vote. Well, let, let, let's, let's be slightly positive for a second, OK? We're living through the third wave of democracy. The first was in the 19th century up to the 1920s, then sec- post-Second World War. And since the 70s, uh, we've been, we're, we're, there's been what, what political scientists call the third wave of democracy. So each time there's been a wave of democracy, it's 
more countries have become democratic and then some have fallen back. And then the second wave, more countries became democratic, even more countries in the peak of the first uh, wave. Uh, and now uh, we've increased. So, you know, huge number of countries now are, are democratic in the world. Uh, in Europe, uh, all bar one or two countries is, is democratic. So the broad sweep of history has been towards democracy. That's point mm. one. And point two is, you know, since 2008, we've had a really unprecedented in living memory economic crisis. And sure, we've had a political reaction, but the biggest political reaction has tended to be to vote governments out. So it's an anti-incumbency bias. Sure, you know, there has been a rise of populist and extremist parties. But, you know, I think I think we, it can be overstated. Uh, at this, you know, democracy is fragile, civil liberties are fragile, but I, I think we can possibly overstate the social and political reaction uh, to recent, you know, recent events, and that democracy is is pretty solidly founded and based in 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 the Western world. Breed Smith, what do you think? Um, you know, when you see a decision like Brexit, that uh, most experts agree is a bad decision, do you think it was a bad idea to give the people the power to make that decision? We were on radio, we're not on television, but I liked the way you looked up when you said experts, because who is actually deciding whether it's a bad or a good decision. It's not necessarily the experts as you look up to the sky. Um, I actually think that it's a very interesting, not necessarily a bad decision at all, but quite an interesting outcome. And that if you look at, say, Lord Ashcroft's study and report into the vote in Britain, it's not all about immigration. It's certainly not all about racism. Uh, It's particularly a Labour working class vote against the system. And he proves this by looking at, not proves the theory, but actually studies how the votes were cast and where they were cast by looking at the sort of working class towns in England that have been most disaffected, alienated and disenfranchised by the system. Places that had once got steelworks and mines and heavy industry where unemployment has been endemic for decades now, where People don't feel they have a stake or a say in anything. Um, And I think there's a mixed consciousness there with people because known Britain as well as I do, there's a lot of people who on the one hand would say, yes, I'm worried about immigration because both the Tories and the Labour Party are telling me I should. But don't touch Savita that lives next door who's from Bulgaria or Iraq or whatever. She's nice and her family's nice and I'll defend them to the death. So there's a contradictory consciousness going on with people. Um, what they do, what the results do show is that there's a real disenfranchisement and alienation from the system. And I can totally see that and I can totally understand why the EU would become a proxy for that feeling. And yet, it seems to be that by voting to go out of the European Union, they're actually making their lives much worse. That that was the wrong decision on well, which I mean, to exercise. Well, the jury's out on that. And we'll see because what they've done, what the Brexit result has done is it's punctured a very powerful, very um, tyrannical economic system that has driven Europe for the benefit of the very, very wealthy to the detriment of the marginalised. And now that's been punctuated by a democratic vote of the will of the British people, the second strongest economy in Europe. And it's thrown open the question to other uh, parts of Europe, ourselves included, are we better in or out of this 
economical system and that's all it is. It You know, people talk about, oh, isn't it great that we can, you know, labour can move freely and people can move around countries. That is a minute part of what Europe does and actually most of the key decisions that are made in Europe are made by unelected people. Like, we didn't elect um, Minister Hogan to be the European Commissioner. He was elected in Kilkenny and yeah. uh, represented a, a particular interest group and then became Commissioner. And it's the likes of Phil Hogan who make the key decisions in Europe, not the likes of, let's say, Lynn Boylan from um, Sinn Féin or Marion Harkin from Sligo, that people did elect. The real decisions are made in Europe by the Commission, um, not by the MEPs. So, Ivana Bacic, do you trust the people then to have a direct say in democracy? So, like referendums, do you think they're a good idea or not? And that decision in Britain would have transpired to be one of the most disastrous decisions for the working class in Britain. So they voted against their own self-interest. I was deeply disappointed and distressed, actually, by the vote um, to leave uh, in in the British referendum. Somebody who lived in London, in fact, I was born there because my parents, like many Irish, emigrated to London for work in the 60s. So I was born there, I went back there myself to work after leaving college, like many of my contemporaries in the late 80s, and uh, loved London and still love London. And London, of course, voted to stay as did Scotland, as did most of the big cities in England. And it's very interesting when one looks at the breakdown of the uh, vote, because in fact it wasn't as simple as working class for for out and middle class for in. It wasn't, you know. Uh, Yvette Cooper did a wonderful speech about it, the Labour MP, talking about how the Tory shires all voted to leave as well. I mean, the the elites were looking to leave too, and it was a victory for the far right. I don't think there's any other way of portraying it when one looks at the UKIP influence and the Boris Johnson and yeah. the Michael Gove. But you know, all, so all of that I found deeply distressing. I think it's a bad result, for, particularly for working class uh, communities so just, in Britain. But having said that, you know, but I think that's a separate issue to the issue of is a referendum the right way to, is a, is a referendum democratic? I think, I personally, I think representative democracy is a better form of democracy. It's a more effective form. And it's in fact the Why? form that, of course, because I think there are issues, because I think it's a, it's a, better way of managing or of governing a country is to have representative democracy. I think conversely though I think if you do have, if you do move to a direct democracy model where people are voting on referenda, I think you need to develop a culture of that. I mean, you know, many people will be familiar with, you know, the Californian model where you vote every time there's an election you also have a series of referendum questions I think then it becomes, or Switzerland obviously is the big one in Europe where we see government by, governance by referendums can be quite normal and I think then that becomes commonplace, people get used to voting on issues and so on. So I think you can move to that model. I think in Britain the problem was it fell between two stools. There's a culture in Britain in the UK I suppose where you know other than the Scottish independence referendum they hadn't they don't have a culture of referendums. They didn't have a written constitution, unlike us until recently. So, you know, there, there's a very different model of governance there. I mean, you know, I learned constitutional, I practiced law in Britain. Parliamentary sovereignty is the governing constitutional principle there. And that's the model on which their democracy was built, was the mo- model of representative so democracy. Was so, the, so was the big mistake to have a referendum, and I think it was Martin Schulz who said, uh, in the European Parliament, England broke the rules they allowed the people to have a say in their own fate, which is an extraordinary... Well, I don't agree with that because obviously every country has the right to decide yeah. for themselves. I mean, and it, can I just say, I totally take issue with Breed's characterisation of the EU as a tyrannical system. I mean, 
you know, that's ludicrous. The EU is the EU has many, many flaws. It's, it can be deeply bureaucratic. But the real power does reside, in fact, with the elected governments of Europe in the Council of Ministers. And, you know, the Commission may have sought to take on power. And I think, you know, I would agree with Breed. I, I don't like the idea that the Commission would take on power. But I think over recent treaties, we've seen um, more power, more controls on the Commission, more curbs on the Commission from the European Parliament, which, of course, is directly elected. But we've seen the real power of the sovereign states remaining with okay, the councils of ministers, me... who, of course, are the directly elected governments of each sovereign right, state. Right, but let me put it like this. Would you risk having referendums on EU membership in every EU country? I think that's a matter for each individual EU yeah, country. And again, in Ireland, don't forget, we have a long tradition of having referendums on any aspect because we have a written constitution, because of the way our constitution is written, Article 29. Time getting a referendum yeah. on repeal the Eighth Amendment. Yeah. Uh, no, Gra- no, but on EU, I mean, on the, absolutely. I mean, we obviously share a view. But Graham Finlay, you see, would you do that? Would you trust the people of Europe to vote the right way on, on the European Union? So not, I'm not asking so much about the right or wrong of the European Union, but can you trust the people to make the correct decision? I mean, I'm a Europhile and I should declare that I've gotten a lot of research support from the European Union. I teach in a human rights program they have in Venice and so forth, right? But so I think it's hard to say that there's the right choice and the wrong choice to some extent because that then, I mean, there's a long history in democratic thinking about that there are such things as good and bad choices. And, and you know, that that in fact juries, you know, there's the, the, the Condorcet jury theorem which says the larger the voting group you have, the more likely they are to make the right decision. Uh, even if they have a better than average chance of, of making, every individual voter has a better than average chance of making the right decision. Now that works especially well with up-down, true-false uh, kinds of questions like referendums. It's not as applicable to the kind of packaging of positions which we find in party platforms and, and in, in representative democracy. So in a way, even the language of the right or wrong decision already presumes a lot about what voters can and can't do. And I'm a bit leery about saying that, that voters, you know, the decision of the voters is wrong in any particular case. But at the same time, because uh, we have to ultimately trust the voters at some point. Otherwise, we Why? get rid of democracy altogether. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that we go all the way to a populist democracy where everything's up for grabs. And that's one of the problems with the unwritten constitution and parliamentary supremacy mm. in the UK, which is that there is no break on popular democracy, majoritarian erosion of, of civil and human rights. So as long as we have a liberal democracy in which some things are off the table, then I do, I do trust the voters of, of most countries something... just because we have to. Otherwise, we've, we've given up on democracy full stop. Right, but saying that, <clears throat> conceding that some things are off the table means you're conceding that the people cannot be trusted with certain decisions. So, yes. for, for example, if you take, um, actually, Dan, I'll put this to you. If you take referendums and take, say, civil rights, okay, traditionally, it's been elites. It's been lawyers and courts that have granted minorities their rights and they're always way ahead of the mood of the people. That's nonsense. No, in America, say black civil rights, Roe versus Wade, you know, if you're pro-choice, that the the elites have been ahead of the people on civil rights. And now I was saying to Graham before the show, I'm I'm cautious of quoting Ayn Rand, uh, but she did say individual rights are not subject to a public vote. A majority has no right to vote away the rights of a minority. So... Do you trust the people to make the right decisions when it comes to big decisions? You know, do we look around Europe and do we see marches for referendums? Exactly. Do we see hundreds of thousands of petitions to hold referendums? Opinion polls show that most people in Europe don't want a referendum on EU membership. And my view is if there was an upswell in in, in a country for, 
you know, whether it's EU membership or whatever, and people wanted to have a vote on it, and it became an issue that people campaigned for. Fine. Let's, let's be clear about this. You know, even in Britain, general election after general election, people were asked, what are the issues that are most important for you? EU, as a salient issue, hardly registered. Okay, so there was no huge demand for a referendum in the UK. There was a small group of people, an elite if you want, who feel very strongly about the EU and want to get out. The average person, when they vote election after election, have not been voting about the European Union. Right, but you said, say if we take the issue of experts, right? So you decide to have a referendum. You're going to have a public debate about it. And you were saying in the Sunday Independent, you were talking about the death of deference since the 1960s. And um, uh, you said that a view held by an expert now in a field is no better than the opinion of someone who's a non-expert. And while experts can be wrong individually and collectively, they are usually more correct than non-experts in their field. But in the case of, say, climate change, you quoted, and in the case of Brexit, all the experts are saying one thing and the people are saying another thing. They're just not listening. Well, I'm not sure they're not listening. And I just, I'm not sure, uh, maybe I got that wrong. But just in case, just that quote, yeah. what I'm saying is that experts usually are yes. more correct than Yes, sorry, maybe I read okay? it. Yeah, so but just, just, yeah. just to be clear. But, you know, what, what's changed for, for in a lot of things is that people feel, well, you know, my view, view is just as good as someone else's. And I don't care if he or she has studied for years about this thing. You know, if I don't, if I instinctively don't like that position, I will just dismiss that person. And then, with the with the nature of social media, it's it's and on the internet, it's very easy then to find somebody to confirm your own bias. So you then go out and look for an expert. And there are some people in the climate change business, a tiny, I think it's about 2% of, of, of uh, climatologists, say that it's not an issue. You go and find this person and you say, look, here's an expert who's, who said this. So, you know, this is a, a, a difficulty. Death of deference is great, but there is a downside to it if people sort of just brush off people who are know more about stuff than they do. So therefore, it, the trend would be that we should fear more than ever giving people the right to make decisions in their own fate because they are so willfully determined to ignore the experts. Uh, again, I'd come back to the issue. If people want a referendum and if there's an upswell in public opinion for and public support, then consider it. But, you know, it's just not, certainly on the EU it, it, it's just not an issue in, in European countries. Well, Breed Smith, Ono Mali was writing in the Sunday Independent uh, two weeks ago and he said, ordinary voters cannot be expected to understand economic and political issues so referendums don't work. Well, I think he talks a lot of crap, just like I think relying on experts to deliver for, on high the, the right uh, answers is a load of crap as well. Now, I'm sorry if my colloquial use it's of okay. language is not yeah. acceptable, but I'm not trying to be insulting to anyone. I'll give you a good example I'm on the committee in the Doyle for climate change, um, communications and the environment. We have a minister whom I put, we're now putting through a bill on energy. Energy is fundamentally the most important factor that leads to climate change, how we produce it, how we use it. I put a simple amendment to the committee yesterday before this bill goes to the Doyle next week asking for a reserved place on the SEAI, the Energy Regulating Committee, for an environmentalist, an expert in environmental and climate change who has a record in fighting for communities to change the direction we're going in terms of using energy. And I used the simple example of the people on the Aran Islands now produce their own energy through uh, wind uh, turbine harvesting. 
and they produce more than they need because thankfully we live in a country that gets lots of natural resources kicking in to produce energy. We don't exploit it enough. Unfortunately, we're still burning too much carbon and contributing to climate change. We have no chance of meeting or even our basic targets set under the Paris Agreement if we keep going down this road. So arguing for a reserved place on that committee for environmental anti-climate change expert was met with huge resistance Um. and is still by the minister and by the civil servants. They're all saying, oh, no, 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 we can't do this, we can't do this. Why can you not do this? Well, you make a very good point, Deputy, and I will do my best to ensure that somebody is appointed. Well, then put it in legislation because, Minister, this government may not last and you may not be the Minister for long, but let's put it in the legislation that there will be a reserve place. They will not do it. They will not do it. Now, ask me why. I can't answer that other than to say that everything that happens in society is controlled by an elite with self-serving interests. And the people who are at the coalface, if you take, for example, the HSE, I know this very well because I advocate for respite care and small community hospitals, etc. The HSE is run by a very elitist group of managers who are very highly paid. Walk into any hospital and ask the nurse or the doctor, how will we run this hospital? And they do it a thousand times better for less money. But they don't get that level of democracy and we don't get that right, level of contribution. But go back to your climate change and your wind turbines. You know that when planning applications are put in for wind turbines, the local people are the very first to object because they don't want them because they don't look nice. And to hell with climate Thank you. Change. You've made my point. Because that's precisely what we're trying to change. On the Aran Islands, local people are using turbines. Not at an industrial level, but at a level where it suits uh, co-ops and communities and they're producing more energy than they need and they want to get onto the national grid. And the system doesn't allow them to contribute to the national grid because the national grid is structured for the big players, the ESB and the Airtricities and all these other companies. They're the only people that can get access to it. My point is to change the system so that local, small communities can access economic systems that will allow them to both contribute to and benefit from and the system will not allow it because the system stemming from Europe right down to the economic system that's run through the Dáil only favours the big players not the small guys and democracy is fine and I'm defending with my life I will not have anybody uh, damage or interrupt democracy the right to vote and to make change and make a difference is absolutely fundamental but it doesn't go deep enough because it doesn't touch wealth and it doesn't touch work okay. and that's where we need to change and increase democracy Okay, I have to take a break but just one more quick point say on a people say when they protest against having a halting site near them you know, that's, pa- that's a power that has actually had to be taken away from county councils because every time they tried to put a halting site somewhere, people would object. Well, you know? now, sorry, I'm, as somebody who was chairperson of the Local Traveller Accommodation Committee on Dublin City Council for seven years, I know this is not true. It is not true to say that every community objects. Uh, fair point. Yeah, it is not true. It is usually fair. in the better off areas where the objections, there is a big halting site in Ballyfermot and the, the community of travellers in Ballyfermot go to school, work along side. Yesterday was Traveller Pride. Okay. The community were up there helping the travellers to set up the, the area for their celebration. Right. But in those better off areas where they do object, you know, then councils have to override the opinions of the people because they're just acting in their own self-interest and, so and not thinking about They don't override them. By and large, they don't. So they pay attention and they don't put the sites You there. look at the election literature of mainly 
And, uh, you know, they may object to this, but mainly Fine Gael councillors and TDs in the better off areas. They will, a lot of them will refer to the Halton site, the travellers, and yeah. we don't want this and we don't want that. And they get elected. And they get elected That's my by point. a certain cohort. They yeah. get elected by a certain... I got elected in Ballyferm for sticking up for travellers. Do you know, it, 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 it depends on the class background and the situation you come from. OK, I will be back with more after these. We'll just take a quick break. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. And welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about the death of democracy this morning. In studio, Dan O'Brien, Chief Economist with the, with the Institute of International and European Affairs. Breach Smith is a TD for Anti-Austerity Alliance and People Before Profit in Dublin South Central. Ivana Bacic is a Labour Senator. And Graeme Finney's lecturer in UCD in the Department of Politics and International Relations. Um, Ivana Bacic, I was referring before the break to an article by Ono O'Malley in the Sunday Independent a couple of weeks ago. And uh, he was saying voters remain abysmally ignorant of basic facts. Many surveys show that ordinary voters vastly overestimate how much is spent in social welfare payments. They believe that immigrants cost vast sums in welfare, when in fact, mainly because they are predominantly young, working, childless males. Migrants in the UK, for example, are net contributors to the state. You know, so and then in a world of social media where people can seek out their own facts to support their views, we are becoming less informed and therefore less trustworthy with political decisions. Well, Owen O'Malley certainly gave a good old rant. I don't agree with him. And I think, to be but fair to him, I think true. some of it was tongue-in-cheek. I but, mean, there's, but, a, there's a point where he said, and this was quite funny, where he says, you know, people are in referendum of voting like children. They should they should be voting for their parents through representative democracy. And Boris Johnson is like the irresponsible uncle who wrecks the house and then hands the key back to the parents to tidy up. Now, of course, Owen wrote that before Boris Johnson was appointed foreign secretary and has now been given back the keys and told, tidy up your mess. But on that issue... So of, I think it's somewhat, it was somewhat... Yeah, but on, on the issue of how informed citizens are, they do think vast um, amounts more are spent on social welfare. For example, they vastly overestimate how many Muslims live in their countries. That's throughout uh, the West. Western world and um, how much immigrants cost in welfare. Like they do have really basic facts wrong. Well, he does make some very serious points. And again, you know, not to constantly focus on Boris Johnson, but of course, infamously, Boris Johnson did put out a number of downright lies about the EU. And indeed, the whole campaign, a lot of the campaign run by the Leave side, the Brexit side, relied on, absolute, again, utter lies, distortions and, and again, fabrications. Things like that, you know, if, you leave, if we leave the EU, we'll have more money to spend on the NHS. I think it was 350 billion. Million. Billion. Yeah, nonsense yeah. figures. Million, um, but, million. you know, and so I think the serious point Owen O'Malley is making is that where those sort of lies are allowed to go unchecked, in public discourse or public debate, they can and do influence the outcome of referendums, particularly. And I think, you know, what maybe is missing from his analysis is that that may be, that may be particularly true where you have a culture, as I've said before, a culture in Britain and a, and a system of governance in Britain that's utterly reliant until now on parliamentary supremacy and representative democracy and has no history of referendums. I mean, I know quite a few people here who were sort of champing at the bit in Ireland saying, why, you know, they should ask some of us who've had such a long experience of running referendum campaigns to talk about just the way in which you need to conduct debate because yeah, as, as with any but, but I mean Sarah with the governance of any democracy in or, you have to have checks in place to guard against crude populism crude majoritarianism and we are talking about this earlier you need to put limits on the power of government you need to guarantee basic rights particularly for minorities who otherwise of course if you have a very crude democracy are, are going to simply uh, be ro- be over overridden by a majority so you know so you have to have checks in place and, and I think perhaps 
with the referendum campaign in, in the UK, you know, how, how could one have done it better? Certainly those sort of lies. There should have been a way of... Now, there was a very interesting rule, and again, a few people <coughs> on the inside in Britain pointed this out to me, that, that um, they did have a control in place and, and it worked against the... Um, the people who were trying to put forward sort of fact checks and so on, which was the rule against having government reports produced, I think, in the last three weeks running up to the referendum date. But it, And it meant that there was a very, it was a difficulty with putting out um, actual data, objectively produced data. And that was one of the problems, I think, as we saw the Leave side sort of rising in the polls towards the end. They also then started putting the emphasis on immigration and that really seemed to, unfortunately, and very you know, disturbingly, it really increased the support for the Leave side when they focused on immigration and that dreadful Nigel Farage poster of, you know, Breaking Point and the refugees calling. I do have to make a point here because it wasn't just the Leave side that focused on immigration. It was also the Remain side and chiefly the Labour Party. Oh, yes, we're worried about immigration and that's why we need to um, change our immigration laws and we need checks and balances on immigration There was no mainstream party that actually stood up to that crap and said immigration is not the problem. If we didn't have immigrants, we wouldn't have a growing population. Did the Tories not say that? The Tories did not. David Cameron, David Cameron, the Prime Minister, insisted on this on the basis of immigration. Can I just say? I don't think he 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 led the charge on it, but it was followed by the Labour Party and the Liberals and the whole lot of them. Immigration became the issue. And nobody really well, stood out and said... Can I just say this? this clear, you know, I agree with Breed that no party covered itself in glory on immigration. I think Labour ran a disastrous campaign, frankly. I was disgusted that Corbyn didn't lead for the Remain side. I mean, you know, 48% of people across the UK voted to Remain. Labour should have been leading the Remain side and putting the case for a social Europe, a Europe for the people, a Europe that has delivered on workers' <coughs> rights, on rights for women and so on, and tried to, you know, and, and arguing for a reformed and a more democratic European Union structure. And, you know, there was a nucleus of a campaign there. Corbyn unfortunately didn't have the support of his MPs and the, and the Labour Party was actually split so I agree with Breed it was a disastrous campaign but you know you, one can't deny the Leave side were driving the immigration argument the Tories and so on were appalling on immigration too and of course the Tories themselves were deeply split and of course as Dan said earlier I mean the reason the referendum was held was in the first place was not that there was an outpouring of, of, of desire for it from among the British people but rather that Cam- Cameron was simply deferring to and afraid of the Eurosceptic wing within the Tory party and wanted to win the last election and unite the party and that's why he gave that disaster promise to hold the referendum. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't from some sort of democratic outpouring that it came. Graeme, there's so much there I want to get into, but one of the points, let's take that, um, that lies, simple lies told during that campaign and the 350 million, and we could spend this on the NHS, which the next day, Nigel Farage admitted was completely wrong. I mean, it was just astonishing. Now, whose job is it to tackle those lies? Is it the other politicians or is it the media? Both. But the media is really, really important. And the Brexit referendum was a colossal failure on the, on the media's part to at all <clears throat> hold the leave side to account to um, and, the, you know, the anti-immigration bias in, in the UK has been driven by over a decade of constant media bombardment by certain papers, which are the most popular papers in the UK, which have a headline about migrants doing this and that, which is often false every single day. Like the Daily Express, every single day, some kind of lie about migrants and invading the country and, and what they're doing. So the media, it's, you know, the state of the UK media is in a shocking state. And I have to say, I agree a lot with what Breed said. I think there's a lot of hope for democracy here in Ireland and then also, I hope, in Europe. I mean, I would like to see an empowered European parliament. I would like to see a, a social Europe, which actually does work to uphold workers' rights. And we don't have it yet. I still think we could. But... but 
is you, the, is, sorry, is the point though that it's getting worse, not better? Because um, and you could say the media used to be an elite which was filtering opinions which could have been used as propaganda and Breed might argue has been in the past that social media was supposed to be the democratisation of the media and people could finally find out what was really going on outside the coterie of journalists deciding what was news but instead it's just turned into backing up mob rule and and bad information. The media can go that way. I mean I think there is a real concern about and the loss of deference to the media where nobody has any authority anymore and, and people just go on social media and find whatever they believe. I, I do think that we have a lot of reasons to hope in this country for our democracy, which may not be true of larger countries which where people don't have immediate contact with their elected representatives, where people have to have these conversations and get their information from mass media or from whatever they find on the Internet the, the local politics, which Breed was referring to, are, are really, you know, they could be a lot stronger in this country. We have quite weak local and municipal institutions. But politics is local in Ireland in a way it's, it's not. And I mean, I mean, Breed and Ivana will tell us, you know, about how easy it is to have access to your elected representatives uh, in this country. And people, people are really engaged, I think, with these kinds of local events, local participation in a way which which isn't possible necessarily in the United States and Canada. And also, I think our governing institutions and our media are actually more responsible in this country to a large extent. We can have a conversation like this uh, on national radio, whereas in my native Canada, even, you know, you don't get this kind of quality of, of conversation or these issues being raised um, on a national level. And finally, I think when we see the, you know, the the Oireachtas can work quite well as well. And if you think about the discussions in the health committee about the protection of life during pregnancy, bill. Um, that was a pretty adult conversation, which was not reduced to people shouting at each other, um, and where a lot of different voices were heard, and where facts were put out there, and then could be checked and, and, and discussed. Yeah, Ivana. Can I say again, just you know, because I think Graham's right about the, the kind of the better aspects of the Irish experience, and certainly again, to come back to the issue of referendums, and our, and our tradition, in fact, in this country, of having uh, constitutional referendums quite normally. I mean, we do have a very well-developed referendum commission, and that, but, I think, is the answer, in, or one of the answers. In but terms when it came to Europe, when well. it came to Europe, we voted the wrong way, and I'm doing that inverted commas things, and we had to vote again to get it right. Twice. Yeah, twice. Yes, that's right. You know, know. so, yeah. you know, are we yeah, Well, Well, I look on, on abortion, we've had, what, four... Uh, five referenda so far. You know, so there's been a number. No, none on repeat. Yeah. Oh gosh, well, listen, I know on, that. But can I just say? But can I say this? Yeah, and yeah. Very petty just let Ivana make a final point. Bring it down. Finish the point, though. And you know, in terms of marriage equality, I suppose our most recent referendum experience, I think, was hugely positive in terms of debate on what what had been a very controversial issue before that. A very respect, for the most part, conducted in a very respectful fashion. A referendum commission that really did mediate and ensure that facts were checked and so on. And very few outrageous claims being made in the, in the way, uh, you know, very different to the Brexit referendum but where we that, saw those sort of outrageous claims. But that claims goes back to that it. Ayn Rand uh, point and I saw it raised um, by an American writer at the time that it is actually dangerous to hold referendums like that. Now we had to in Ireland because of the constitution yes. but what if the vote had gone the other way? How damaging would that have been? And it's okay to say fine, we passed it, it's grand. If it had gone the other way it would have been a disaster. Yeah and I think many of us on the who had campaigned for, in the, for marriage equality for many years indeed I was involved in as a lawyer for Catherine's opponent and Louise Gilligan in their case where we sought to have the, the courts declare a right to marriage equality uh, some years ago. So you know there are other there were other ways and in other countries of course 
every other country that had legalised marriage equality had done it either through a parliamentary vote or through a court case. We were the first country to do it on a national basis by way of referendum. So it was a high risk thing. I think, I think, however, in Ireland, because we have that experience of running referendum campaigns... And, and, people, and rerunning and them, our, Dan, if we don't give the right results. And, I suppose divorce <laughs> is the other that was rerun when, when one thinks about it. But, you know, that's fair enough. At the same time, a constitution is an organic document. It is supposed to grow and change. We are more than ready for a referendum now on repeal the 8th. You know, but... Well, we're not getting one. I think we'll all be working very hard to ensure we do. But I think the point is that, you know, public opinion changes, that a constitution is a living document and should change accordingly. Over Dan, time. will you go back to that point about the media and how that 350 million to the NHS was so significant and was challenged and acknowledged as being a lie within 24 hours of the result? Why didn't it get challenged effectively during the referendum? Well, it was challenged. Uh, it was challenged effectively. You know, it's the big lie. It's if you come out with a nice, simple thing and you bang it, you, you bang on about it enough, uh, you know, w- will it stick? And, you know, politicians lie like normal people breathe. Uh, that's just to be expected. I don't, you know, I don't know why this was such a, an unusual... OK, but what about the role then of the media versus social media? Is social media democratisation or is social media part of the um, eroding of democracy by giving people their own facts? Well, I'd say it's a bit of both in the sense that, yes, it does give people greater access to media, but it then also means people go into their silo, confirm biases, connect with people who have the same views, don't expose themselves, most importantly, don't expose themselves to views that would challenge... Okay, but what about then the quality of mainstream journalism? Because I know there are, say, there might be a few threads that I follow, you know, in general current affairs, and I find that when I'm reading about them in newspapers the stuff that is wrong is just shocking. And say for uh, last week, we did a show on repossessions and how the narrative in the general media that thousands of people are being turfed out of their homes is simply objectively, factually incorrect, yet is promoted constantly in the press as being true. Brendan Burgess, one of the experts in the area, has brought journalists down to district courts to witness repossession hearings to see how few decisions are being made and how those decisions are probably quite quite fair, but he can't get those journalists to write about it the next day in the paper. Well, I, I think one of the other big factors that we haven't mentioned here is that uh, is complexity, that societies have become much, much more complex because there's just so much more going on. If you think of what government does, you know, a few hundred years ago, cabinet government, a few portly gentlemen sat around and really spoke about the defence of the realm. <laughs> uh, now, health systems, education systems, infrastructure, you know, another one that's come up recently has been uh, the death of rural Ireland. So you hear, hear a lot of politicians coming out, rural politicians. The recovery hasn't gone beyond the, the, the beyond Dublin, that, that kind of thing. That is just all of the available data shows that that is not the case. And, you know, when I wrote a few columns on that, a couple of rural politicians were... Most displeased. Uh, and also, to urban, urban crime it. has increased more than rural crime, but you won't read too much about that either. I have to take a quick break, but we'll be back with more after these. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. So welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about democracy this morning and in studio, Breed Smith, TD for Dublin South Central, Ivana Batchik, Labour Senator for Trinity College, Graeme Finlay, Lecturer at UCD's School of Politics and International Relations and Dan O'Brien, Chief Economist at the Institute of International and European Affairs and columnist with independent newspapers. Graeme Finlay, you wanted to make a point about the street versus the doll. Yeah, I mean, I often ask my students to think about John Stuart Mill and Karl Marx and Karl Marx says that Representative politics is the problem. It's not 
democracy and it's not a solution. And I'm struck by how a number of uh, left-wing TDs are saying that, you know, they see politics as happening in the streets and the kind of movement which is represented by the anti-water charges movement and not in the doll. And I think that's those are very different ways of thinking about democracy and about thinking about politics. And so I am curious whether Breed would share that view and how how that affects how we approach democracy. Well, I don't think you separate the two things because one leads to the other. And I wouldn't be in the Dáil were I not a campaigner on the street and in my estates for, uh, you know, changes like don't pay the stealth taxes. We're being overloaded with loads of taxes on bins and water, etc., and people can't afford this. So I wouldn't be in the doll where I'm not a campaigner on the streets. Um, so it's not just, you know, it's sort of a Chinese wall between the two things. In fact, I would argue very strongly that there's over 90 TDs in the doll at the moment who were elected because they championed opposition to water charges. So the two things go hand in glove. But I will say this, that the result you get when you get elected to the doll, it's impossible to achieve because... Down comes the heavy weight of um, those who control the economy and the commission that's been appointed to look at water charges, given the result of the fob-off that Fianna Fáil have lent the government by supporting them, uh, is that this commission is loaded, loaded absolutely, wall-to-wall with academics, lawyers and um, economists who favour water charges and favour not just water charges, but the privatisation of water. There isn't a single trade unionist or a single representative of the right to water movement on that commission. So, so there's your democracy. So, Ivana Bacic, there is your democracy that despite the expressed will of the people, the institutions of the state are determined to thwart it and therefore... This is, we are witnessing the end of democracy. Well, I don't share Breed's view and I think it's always dangerous to start sh- shouting about, you know, being anti-expert and everyone else is an elite except me. Anyone who's in the dollar Shannon is a member of the elite. That. No, no, That's you didn't. grossly unfair no, no, you didn't. I said it's an, in I general. Said. And can I just say this, that all TDs and senators, myself included, before we were elected, we were activists on some issue or another. You were never elected as a TD, you were elected as a can senator. I, however we were elected were activists on a particular issue or a particular area, often many people in their local communities, many people on national issues and so on. So, you know, it isn't, it isn't, I suppose, easy to separate the politics of the street from the politics of the Oireachtas. But I would say that the danger is where you start to say that only the people are, are right and that elected politicians somehow, you know, have to always be on the street. I think there is a danger about mob rule. I saw one example of very crude populism of the sort we've been condemning in Britain during the leaders' debates in the last election <coughs> where Richard Boyd Barrett was asked... Um, you know, about rural, the closure of rural Garda stations. And his answer was such a glib answer. He said, if people want their local Garda stations to stay open, it should stay open. You know, but sorry, there, you know, you have to have some measure of evidence-based policymaking. If there's evidence that you can have more effective policing and res- invest your resources more effectively through, for example, investing in better pulse system, better technology, better cars on the roads yeah, for guards. And it gets 20 seconds community. to answer no, the excuse question. excuse me, can I finish? You know, rather than just saying if the people want it, let them have it. To me, that is crude populism at its worst. Oh, so, Vanny, so you're Dan, being very unfair, really unfair, and well, I'm very surprised at you. Well, I'll, well, I'll let Dan have the last word. So if the people want it, let them have it. Is that democracy or is that mob rule? That's not what Richard said, by the way. She's been very unfair there. Okay, that, that, that's a huge, huge question. Yeah, now, just, just, just end with, with, with saying that democracy is still the best form of government and the trend is still for democracy and more, people, more countries are becoming more democratic. So I'd be you know, reasonably optimistic that we're still going in the right direction. Okay, reasonably optimistic. We will let that be the final word. Many thanks to you all for that this morning. So that's it for today. Aoife Breen produced, Bobby Carr is up next and thank you for listening. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108.